Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, I don't know what your Christmas is like, obviously, what it's been like leading up to this moment, but I know that sometimes making it a joy-filled Christmas can be a little bit of work, so something like that helps. You get a little bit extra to help you, Uh, but... We're in a space where Jesus meets us wherever we're, whatever we're coming with, right? He comes and meets us in this space, uh, and we're able to encounter the Savior of the world who was born in a room filled with animals. Uh, and I'm just excited to see what Jesus does this morning as, as we connect with him. So let me just pray for us. Father, we just thank you that you have had a big plan since the beginning and that it includes us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to participate in that and to come and to become one of us, to go through all that you went through for us. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that your presence is the gift that kind of keeps on giving and that you're here with us in this space. And so we just ask for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to come and to be here and to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me, uh, let me jump in with maybe the most Captain Obvious statement that I will make uh, this morning, and that's that Christmas is about a birth. I don't know if you recognize that, realize that, but um, I didn't choose anything about my birth, and neither did you. Uh, I was born in Marion, Ohio, in Marion General Hospital to John and Laurel Watson. None of that was my choice. Jesus had a few more choices, one would assume, although he never really talked about that. Uh, I know Bethlehem was required. I don't know about the manger part, um, if that was a necessary thing. But what I really wonder is what Christmas was like for the person who was the most involved in the Christmas story. And that's not actually Jesus up until this point. It's his mother, Mary. What was it like for her on that day? I want to watch a clip from The Chosen where they imagined what it would be like to hear Mary talk about this process of giving birth to the Messiah and what it was like to raise him as a kid. So if you'll turn to the screens and watch this. So how did you feel when that happened? When what happened? His birth. Even before that, how did you know? When did you know who he was? I don't know. We're all tired. Do you really want to hear all that? Yes. 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 <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, well. Nothing about it was easy. I can tell you that. It wasn't in my hometown. My mother wasn't there. We had no midwife. I don't know if I'm ready to give all the details. Maybe some other time. But I do remember this. When Joseph handed him to me, it was like nothing I expected. It was like everything I'd heard about having a baby, but... I thought this would be completely different. What do you mean? I had to clean him off. 
He was covered in... Uh, I will be polite. <laughs> he needed to be cleaned. And he was cold. And he was crying. And... He needed my help. My help. A teenager from Nazareth. It actually made me think for just one moment. Is this really the son of God? And Joseph later told me he briefly thought the same thing. But we knew he was. I don't know what I expected. But he was crying and he needed me. And I wondered how long that would last. He doesn't need me anymore. Not since we taught him how to walk and eat. He hasn't needed me for a long time, I suppose. And after Joseph passed, may he rest in peace. He grew up even quicker. I wish I could say that made me happy. Of course, as a Jew, I'm excited to see everything he does for our people, and I'm proud of him. But as a mom, it makes me a little sad sometimes. Uh, such an intimate moment to think about the humanity aspect of this. The loneliness she felt, the messiness. She was in a strange place. She was exhausted physically. I would assume that she was probably exhausted emotionally. Uh, The mortality rates around birth during that time were pretty terrible. Uh, about 25 to 30% of babies would die within the first year. Uh, 33% of women died in childbirth. So there's this added weight on a 13-year-old of like, what if I die with the Son of God? I can't imagine what that would have felt like. And on top of that, suddenly this teenager has to care for a baby. A person who probably just wanted her own mother at that moment uh, is forced to be a caretaker. And all of that is said in these three short sentences in Luke 2. They were in Bethlehem, the baby came, and she wrapped him up. Listen to this. Luke 2, 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Just very simple statements that give you almost no clue as to what was going on behind the scenes in that moment. I'm getting some bad feedback up here. 
Christmas in our culture is very disconnected from this story that I just laid out, right? Uh, I'm not saying that to say that we're bad or that we're doing something wrong. I'm just saying like that's the reality of it. Christmas for us is like nostalgia and, and Christmas movies and family gatherings and, and parties and uh, lots of presents and trees and lights and, and ugly Christmas sweaters and lots of other good things. But it's about lots of different things. And I think Christmas for us is often seen as a break from the realities in life. It's like for one day at least we get to celebrate like we're kings and queens And then the 26th comes and we're back to it. But the truth is we're not actually that much different from Mary. Maybe a few years older, uh, but we're not actually that much different. We're vulnerable human beings who are living through intimate and personal moments, sometimes painful moments. And I wonder if there's something better for us than just brief holiday breaks that Jesus wants to give us this morning, if he wants to give us the gift of joy, joy that's forged in the real moments of life, joy that actually stays with us. You know, joy is one of those Christian terms that can be really hard to nail down what it is that we're talking about. The Bible Project says this about it, that the biblical story shows that we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective. Joy is an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest circumstances. Joy is an attitude that we take on, not because life is happy, but because our hope is in God's love and promise. I love that concept. And I struggle to say yes to it in the moment, right? Like it's really hard to actually live out that reality. But when I think about this posture, I think about different people in our church and the ways that they've been able to live this out well over the past year. I think of people like a woman actually named Joy, whose son was in a coma, and her adult son in a coma in this fragile space, and yet she was able to grab hold and to have joy in the midst of that. He came out of it, by the way, which is amazing, just this past week, and now he's at home. But she was able to grab a hold of joy in that moment, not because it was easy, but because of Jesus. I think of other people who are caretakers for family members, and it's hard, and it's taken a lot longer and a lot more time out of your life than you had expected that it would. But I've watched you continue day after day to say yes and to take joy in that moment, not because it's easy, but because of Jesus. I think of people who we've seen that are in really hard marriage situations, And it's not because of anything that they did. But they have to keep choosing to take on joy. Not because it's easy, but because of Jesus. I think of other folks in our church 
who I've had the privilege of walking beside as they've been accused of things, as they've lost jobs, as they've been forced to struggle in deep, deep ways. Not because of anything they've done, but they've chosen joy, not because it's easy, but because of Jesus. And I think of each one of us, parents, spouses, co-workers, bosses, students, friends, faced with the everyday moments of life. And the invitation we're being given is to choose joy, not because it's easy, but because of Jesus. In John 16, Jesus says to us, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and then you will rejoice. And no one can rob you of that joy. No one can take it away from you. When his joy sinks into our lives, it's something that can't disappear. It's not something we have to work up to every couple of days, but it's a gift that stays and it sinks into our hearts. And I think of Mary, and she chooses joy in the middle of her pain and her fear and her loneliness, not because any of it's easy. But I think she chose joy because she knew that the plan of God was bigger than the really small part of it that she knew. And she knew that what God was up to was going to be worth all that she was going through. And so she chose joy because it wasn't just about her. If you'll read with Romans, uh, Romans 8 with me, verse 18 is where it starts. L- listen to this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. When I read the line groaning as in the pains of childbirth, I can almost hear Mary shouting out, I knew this was going to be worth it. She's like, finally, you acknowledge that it was worth it. For the creation was subjected to frustration and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from decay and brought into freedom. See, frustration leads to freedom is what Paul's telling us here. Frustration is a very understated English word for what actually is being told here. Uh, What it means is frustration from the futility of life. It's being forced to deal with the pointlessness of life, uh, with hard work that has no good things at the end of it, no big retirement account, no harvest time uh, that gets you everything that you need. To use the imagery that's used here, It's like a pregnancy that goes to full term, and yet it ends in pain. 
Do you understand what that sort of futility feels like? Paul's telling us that that sort of frustration is actually good. But how in the world is it a good thing? What does that mean? He says this because it makes us aware that freedom is coming. Now, I thought for a hot second about continuing with the birth analogy, but then I thought a guy talking about giving birth sounds a little too much like mansplaining, and so I'll avoid that one so that you guys don't talk about that for the rest of your Christmas. Uh, So the closest that I've ever come uh, to this analogy, thinking of being liberated from decay uh, in your body, is when I had my appendix taken out. And I can remember the pain that was associated with that. I was a teenager, and I remember the the day going through school all day, and the pain growing and growing, and then getting home, and my parents were like, suck it up, you'll be okay. And then going to bed and being like, this really hurts, falling asleep for about 15 minutes, waking up and like being bent over, not able to do anything except for like walk to the car. And it was just excruciating pain. I was close to the end of that cycle by the time that we got to the doctor. And my body was crying out. It was screaming out for something to be done. Because just taking a pill or sucking it up wasn't going to do anything at that point. Something had to change in that moment. My body literally needed to be liberated from decay and brought into freedom. And what Paul's saying is that that's what's going on in our entire world, that all of creation is crying out because sin and evil have taken over so much and there is so much decay that's sunk into our world and we need freed from it. And so it's crying out, it's saying, either remove this or it's all over. Scott McKnight wrote that creation itself has been captured by Satan and sin in such a way that if Christ is the Savior, then he needs to rescue all of creation. And this removal of decay has been called by some as the process of cosmic and personal liberation. Cosmic because it's not just about me, but it's about all of creation being freed. Eugene Peterson wrote that any understanding of salvation that separates us from others is false and cripples our participation in God saving the world. I don't fully know how all this works, but what it's saying is that you being saved and me being saved by Jesus are somehow intertwined. And not only that, but God's good enough to realize that our entire world needs to be renewed. And so our salvation is tied to him renewing everything around us. It's all of creation. It's cosmic and it's personal. Because salvation is for us. You were a part of God's decision-making process when this whole thing was laid out. There's a uh, Celtic saying, not the NBA team, the ancient Irish Christians, just to clarify, it's not a Larry Bird saying, uh, that heaven and earth are only three feet apart and that in thin places, it's even shorter. I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about thin places, 
but it's this space where heaven and earth almost begin to touch. It's like almost tangible that you can feel it. Some of you may have experienced something like this in your life, and that may be why you're sitting here today. Because there was a moment when you were in church, maybe it was the first time you came to a church service, and all of a sudden you started crying awkwardly, and you were like, I'm really uncomfortable with this, why do I keep crying? But you couldn't stop, and then somebody afterwards was like, yeah, that happens, that's the Holy Spirit. You're like, oh, so this is a normal thing. Uh, Maybe for you, it was you were praying and it was like a Hail Mary prayer and you didn't really expect anything to happen. But then Jesus actually showed up and did something and showed himself and, and worked in your life. And you were aware that he was real. Could be one of a thousand different things, but these thin places where our lives are touched by the reality of heaven. And there's many of these throughout history, but there's three that stick out as the closest. Three places that changed everything. The manger, the cross, and the empty tomb. Three places that Stephen Watson definitely would not have chosen. (laughs) Not my choice of locations. But in those three places where heaven and earth literally touched, everything was changed forever. These places where Eugene Peterson says, the highest and the lowliest join in wonder and they welcome Jesus, born to you or perhaps for you. Heaven and earth come and touch for you. So we begin to end, let's go back to Mary. Mary in that manger, tired and worn out, holding her baby, who's newly born when guests show up. Mother's in the room. Did you want somebody to show up in the hospital room right after giving birth? No, you would not. And it's not even people she knows, it's strangers. Shepherds, they smell. It's late at night, why are they there? Yet they come in, and in how she reacts, we're given this model for what it looks like to live into this cosmic and yet personal liberation that Jesus brings. Because as she's sitting there holding her newborn baby close, that intimate moment of bonding between mother and child, they come in, and she does something shocking. She takes the baby And she lifts him up and she asks them to come closer. And she gives them space to be able to come and to encounter Jesus, the one who they just found out was born for them in that moment. She gives up of what she wanted for them. And in that action, she gives us a clue of what it looks like to participate in this as followers of Jesus. People who sometimes following Jesus is an intimate and a close thing that we don't really want to share with other people because we're fragile, because we need it. And yet at times, Jesus is going to send people our way. And all that he wants us to do is just be willing to share and to take that gift that he's given it and to hold it out and to say, this is what it looks like. It can change everything for you too. And so here's my hope for us this Christmas. 
that this Christmas won't be merry and happy just because we get to take a break, although I love breaks. But it will be joy-filled because we have encountered the reality of Jesus who comes here to be with us this day. This is the, the truth of the messy story of a baby born in a manger. This is what it's all about, that Jesus is here and that Jesus loves you.